0: Genesis chapter 20, we'll read the chapter together. Genesis 20, beginning in verse 1. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man (laughs) because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now, Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things, and the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought… There is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, "'This is the kindness you must do me. At every place to which we come, say of me, He is my brother.'" Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Father, we have read uh, from your word, and God, you have given this section of your word to us. Because, God, you want us to know it, you want us to study, you want us to learn who you are from this. So, God, I pray that you would teach us, that you'd reveal yourself to us, and, Lord, that your word would be implanted deep within us, Lord, the, the word that is able to save our souls. God, would you sanctify and make us holy for your use and your purpose, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's, there's a lot happening in this chapter. Um, And we have a lot of questions about this because there are so many different parts, so many different moving pieces, and and there are important lessons, a lot of important lessons for us in this chapter, but so few explanations are given uh, about the specifics. God gives us this account, and He does it because it's true, but also because it does teach us about life, both inside and outside of God's revealed will. God says, here's what's supposed to happen, and this is what other people end up doing. This is what we end up doing so, fu- so many times outside of His revealed will. And he, he shows us this in the life of people. So much in Genesis, so often in, especially the Old Testament, we learn about God. We learn about ourselves in the lives of people. We don't get theological treatises. Uh, we don't get doctoral dissertations. <laughs> we, we just get stories, and sometimes explanations are left out. And so this chapter has really caused a lot of people to pause, to stumble around a little bit and say, uh, yeah, I'm not really quite sure what to do with it. And, and to be honest, I wrestled this week a lot with this passage. So often the passages are, are relatively easy to outline and you can just get started and you get plugged in and you can get going right away. Um, I'm still still not happy with what I have for us to lead us through this passage, but I am happy with what God has given us, His Word. His Word is perfect. I am not, and praise God that I know that. (laughs) Praise God that you know that, and we'll come to His Word and uh, learn about God and about ourselves here in chapter 20. Some people have said that this chapter is all about marriage and the importance of marriage and the danger of adultery. And there's a little bit about that in the chapter, but that's not really what it's about. Other people have said, well, this is a chapter highlighting the difficulty of besetting sins. Now, besetting sins, those sins that just we continually struggle with, right? Uh, Other people don't struggle with it as much, but we have a certain weakness and we fall into the same type of sins or the same kinds of sins over and over. And we remember back in chapter 12 that Abraham had already done this where he lied about who Sarah was and she was taken from him and then restored as God worked that about. So, well, this is happening again. And so this is a chapter all about how to deal with recurring sins, but it's not really all about that either, even though that's part of the chapter. Other people have said, uh, experts, scholars, you know, this is just a repeat of chapter 12. It's really the same event, and, and this is just another author of Genesis just repeating the same thing over again, so you can just gloss over it and not worry about it too much. But we can gloss over what they've said because they've minimized God's Word, <laughs> and they've told us something that isn't right. This is a true account in history of what Abraham did even though 25 years have passed since the last time he did this same sin. Really, the main idea for this account, the main point, when you study this, you wrestle with it in the context of Abraham's life, and and at this point in Scripture, the point of this is that God is continually active in fulfilling his word and protecting his people. He's continually faithful. He is the faithful God. So, as we struggle with besetting sins, as we struggle with being honest, as we struggle with life and marriage and self-preservation and all of these ideas, God struggles with nothing because He already knows, He already sees, and He is faithfully bringing about His purposes, His promises, His Word in the life of His people whom He is protecting. He will fulfill His Word and protect His people. So, in His faithfulness, we see that He's working in three ways in this chapter, So, chapter 20, verses 1 through 7, number one, we see that God is faithfully working as God confronts Abimelech. God confronts Abimelech. Now, Abraham journeyed away from the area he's been living in. The the last time we saw him in his tent and meeting the angels and the physical presence of God, that's where he was and he decides to move on. And there's no reason for that that we can see. God didn't tell him, Abraham, it's time for you to go. There's, there's nothing from God. Maybe he was struck by the overwhelming just tragedy of Sodom and Gomorrah being destroyed, but whatever it was, he moves, and where he moves, there's already a people, the Philistines living there, and their leader is, my father is king. That's what Abimelech means, my father's king. So, when they get there, Abraham calls Sarah his sister, and Sarah calls Abraham her brother, so Abimelech takes Sarah. Now, verse 17 says Abimelech already has a wife, and we know at this point that Sarah is already 90 years old. So why, if he already has a wife, does he take a 90-year-old Sarah to be another part of his house? Well, again, scholars, experts put forth guesses, and they say, well, God is about to bring a child into this world through Sarah, so he must have somehow given her like a fountain of youth or something, or refreshed her in some way. So, she's, she's beautiful and young again, and, and that's why He took her. But we really don't have to stretch things um, that aren't in the Word realistically. We know that at the time, kings and powerful men displayed their power and their importance by taking more than one wife, even having a harem of women, wives and concubines and servants. And the, the more that they had, the more impressive they thought they were, and the more impressive other people thought they were. So, that's really what it appears that, uh, that, that Abimelech is doing. Now, we know later on that Israel, the people that would come from Abraham, were going to be permitted to have a king. And God would tell them in Deuteronomy 17, I'm going to give you a king. He's going to be one of your own. But he's not to stockpile horses. He's not to get down to Egypt to get more horses. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And so that's what God had for Israel's kings. And as we look at King Saul, we we see that he obeyed that pretty well. But David and Solomon did not. And we see that Solomon eventually turned away because of that. But Abimelech here isn't under that constraint. He's under the the norm, the standards of the day. So he sees a woman who's accompanying a powerful, wealthy, sojourning man. And so he says, I'm going to take that woman maybe to form an alliance with this man, Abraham. And I'm going to strengthen myself. But there was a catch in his plan that he didn't know. And that was that she was already married at the time there were actually, if you can understand, this is, this is it was amazing to me, mind-blowing. At the time, there were actually laws that said, if you take a man's wife and you didn't know she was a man's wife, how often did that happen? Apparently, often enough for there to, a law to be made. Okay, if you take a woman and she happens to be another man's wife, you've got to swear an oath that you didn't know and then pay some damages, make some restitution for doing that. So Abimelech did just that without knowing. And you might think that Abraham might say something, but he doesn't. He just lets it happen. This has happened before, but just like before, Abraham is silent. So here's a question. Why does Abraham do this again? (laughs) Didn't he learn from the last time? It's been 25 years since he did it in Egypt, and we've seen growth in his faith. We've seen him just maturing in his faith and believing in God. Why does he make the same mistake? Well, the first Lesson in your notes here is that you never become past the point of temptation. You never get past temptation. You never get mature to the point so much that you just move above and beyond all sin, and you never have to worry about it again until the Lord brings us home. Right? Don't we get to glory? That's just not how sin works. It just says, "Oh, he's holy enough. I'll just leave him alone." Your flesh never gets to the point where it says, "Okay, you're right. I'll get in line and do what God says." So what happens instead is that God directly intervenes and he confronts Abimelech. And here's some more questions. Why doesn't God go to Abraham? Why doesn't God confront Abraham? He goes instead to, to Abimelech. And at no point in this chapter does God address Abraham's sin. He goes after, after Abimelech. So does that mean that Abraham's sin wasn't that bad, that it was okay to do that? Well, no. No. Actually, what's going to happen is that Abraham will get called out by his sin, but by an unbeliever. By an unbeliever. Now, I think that would probably be a very memorable lesson for Abraham. Have you ever been called out for sin in your life by an unbeliever? I, I remember one time where I was called into, uh, called out before people because it, it, back in the Air Force, there was a young man named Shiloh, and he, he had come into our office, and we all were working closely together, but he, he asked, does anybody know where my name came from? And none of us answered, and he said, even this guy, he pointed at me, even this guy that says he reads the Bible doesn't know where Shiloh came from? And Shiloh was the place where the Ark of the Covenant was when the people of Israel came into the land, into the promised land, and, and I didn't know. And so he called me out in front of everybody. Wow, okay, you, you read the Bible, sure you do. It was pretty embarrassing, but it's a, it's a memorable lesson that I learned at that point. I better actually be reading the Bible. So he gets, he's gonna get called out by an unbeliever, but not only that, as God confronts Abimelech, he only confronts him with this one sin, taking a man's wife. Why doesn't God confront him with all of his other sins, right? I mean, Abimelech, you've got apparently a harem of women. Why doesn't God call him out for that? Why doesn't God call him out for all of the wicked and the cruel practices of the Philistines? They were known for being a very warlike and cruel people. But God only confronts Abimelech on this one sin. And the only answer I came up with, I think this is a good example of 1 John 5 where we learn that all sin is wrongdoing, and we know all wrongdoing, all sin, the wages of sin, is death. But there is sin that does not lead to death right now. John says there is sin that leads to death, like, right, like soon, like right now. There, is something, there are some sins that we can do that will actually bring an early death, early as far as we're concerned, urgent sin that needs to be dealt with. So, so really, what, it, what this is, is it's God's grace to confront Abimelech, to say, you've got a sin that's going to bring your death very soon or now if you don't take care of it. So it's his grace to confront Abimelech. Now, that's the next lesson in our notes that we have, that it's a good thing to be confronted with your sin that's actually a good thing. It's uncomfortable. You don't like it, right? It doesn't look nice. It's not pretty. It's pretty ugly when I get a, a view of my own sin, and I don't like to do that. But this is a good thing. This is a grace by God to show us our sin, because that means you get to deal with it right now. You get to confess it. You get to repent of it. You get the joy of his forgiveness. Instead of being confronted with it at at the judgment seat of Christ on the last day when there's no excuse, no hope, and what comes after that is his eternal death sentence of hell. So this is a good thing to be confronted with sin. But Abimelech didn't even know that this was a sin because he didn't know she was married, right? Right? Both of them had deceived him in saying they're related. This is the next one in our notes. Ignorance is not an excuse for sin before the holy God. Even, even I didn't know God, even that's not going to get us out of his judgment. God holds people accountable to his perfect holy law because it is the perfect holy law. It's the only one. And, and, and there is no standard to hold us to. So not knowing if I drive down Highway 69 at 85 miles an hour and the, and the police officer pulls me over, I can't say, I didn't know, and he'll excuse me, right? Not knowing, or knowing the law, but I didn't realize I broke it is, is also not an excuse. So, so he's being confronted with sin, and even though he didn't know, he's being held to this standard. And he's, he's giving an answer to God here. Verse 3, you are a dead man. Why? Because Sarah's married and you took her. Now, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Moses writes this. And he tells us in the next verse that Abimelech had not approached her. Hadn't touched her yet. Hadn't gone near her. It was on his to-do list, right? I mean, <laughs> she's part of his harem. But as verse 18 reveals, God had closed all of the wombs of the women in the entire household. There was some kind of problem that prevented them from giving birth Many scholars even think even from engaging in the act of intimacy that would allow conception. Like there, there was a full stop of everything. There was some kind of problem here. So he, God's already got his attention, but he comes to him and he confronts him. So then Abimelech says in verses 4 and 5, he, he's pleading his case. I didn't know. They deceived me. You know, I mean? you know, he told me that they were related. She told me they were related. And the question that he asks here is similar to Abraham's question back in chapter 18. The question of, is God just? He says, will you kill an innocent people? So that's next in our notes. God is just. That's an important lesson for us to understand. Yes, God is just. He knew that Abimelech was acting in the integrity of his heart. He didn't really know that she was married, but it still didn't change the fact that it was sinful for him to have her. So he needed to be returned to her husband. Sin must be dealt with. But even more striking is verse 6 where it's revealed, God says that he prevented Abimelech from sinning against him. Now again, Abimelech was a sinner who had been sinning, but specifically this great sin God was dealing with right now. Now part of the how may be that intervention that we talked about with not able to have children. I mean, he had closed all their wombs. But Abimelech was, was sinning, he was, but he was kept back from this specific sin actively by God. It says, I did not let you touch her. Now, that should raise a huge question in our minds. What does that mean? What does that look like? And and if God kept Abimelech back from sin, from this sin, and and he's all-powerful, and he's always around, he's he's omnipresent, and he's omnipotent, all-powerful, well, then why doesn't he keep everybody back from all sins, right? If If he can hold people back, why doesn't he do that for everybody, This is a big, serious question. It's a deep question to to wonder and to ponder. The fact is that God created mankind in Genesis 2 with the ability to choose, to obey, or to rebel. And in Adam and Eve, in chapter 3 of Genesis, as we studied, mankind chose to rebel. And that didn't take God by surprise. Right? We, we know it didn't because before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4 says, God chose us in Jesus. And in 1 Peter 1, Jesus is the Savior, and he was known before the foundation of the world as Savior. So it didn't take God by surprise that mankind fell into sin. But this question is a big one. Does that mean that mankind really isn't free to choose to obey God or to disobey God? And the answer is, that yes, mankind is free to choose according to his nature. According to his nature. The issue is, the problem for us is, our nature changed from sinless in the garden to full of sin at the fall. So you think about it like a fish in the water. The fish in the water is free to go wherever it wants to go, but it breathes the oxygen from the water, right? And and as it breathes the the oxygen in the water, it goes wherever it wants to go, but it can never go out onto the land to start breathing the oxygen from the air. In its nature, it cannot and it will not try to breathe the oxygen from the air. It, It stays in the water. And that's similar to our freedom. Our freedom is we can do whatever we want to do. We can go wherever we want in this world and do anything we want to do because in our nature, we're going to keep. Breathing the water. We're going to keep doing wrong things. We're going to keep doing sin. And that doesn't mean that we're never doing anything good. It just means that before God, none of it's any good. We can't earn our way to heaven. We can't please God with our actions. So we still have freedom. It's just constrained by our nature. We're stuck in the water, we're stuck in sin. And as we talked about last week, and as we've been talking about, there is perfect holiness, like God is, there, the holiness, it's already perfect, and then there's sin. There's everything else, right? And there are worse sins than others, and all sin is deserving of God's wrath and His punishment. Some sins deserve worse punishment, even immediate death, but we are free to choose to live in either constant unrestrained sin, or just a little bit better sins, <laughs> Uh, we can be moral and upright people. We can be nice people. We, we can do that even in the water, <laughs> the water of the sin and the world. There are some people who refuse to restrain themselves, but who refuse to be held back from sin. And so God tells us in Romans 1 that those people, when they're stubborn and they, cons- they, they insist in their sin, God gives them over to it. and They continue and they progress and they, they go from worse and to worse, and he allows them to do that. But how could he do that unless he had been restraining them before, unless he'd been holding them back from worsening and worsening their sin? He, he had been helping them by his grace not to go, but when they continue and continue and continue, he finally says, okay, you can go. Do what you want to do. We've talked about Second Thessalonians before, how he who restrains will be taken away in the last days, and then the tribulation will come. So the answer is yes, mankind is free in his nature to act according to his nature. The problem, again, is that our nature is infected with sin. But at the same time, God can and does hold us back from worse sin, from greater sins by his grace. So he hasn't made us robots. He hasn't made us unable to do or say what we want, what we please. We have freedom, but in our freedom, we freely choose sin. And it would be worse if God didn't hold us back by His grace. And so that's next in our notes, the next lesson. God is so gracious. God is gracious. And nowhere is his grace seen any better than in the person of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Because in Jesus, when we turn away from our sin, we say, God, I don't want to be a fish anymore. (laughs) I don't want to be in sin anymore. I want to please you and honor you, but I can't. Jesus comes and says, I've already pleased God with all of my actions, all of my words and my works and my thoughts and my love for God completely and my love for others. Jesus said, I've already done it. And so he comes and he takes us out of the water and he gives us a new nature. So that now, not only can we still sin, but now we can go back to pleasing God, obeying Him, because of Jesus' work in us. That's His power, that's His grace, that's His love to us. And oh, what a grace this God gives to us. Now, in this specific case, verse 7 shows that Abraham was a prophet. God says, You need to give the, give the man his wife back, he's a prophet. He'll pray for you and you will live. If you don't, you will die. Not just you, but everybody in your house, right? Everybody, you and yours. Prophet means a person who reveals God's word. He he spreads, he's given a word from God and he spreads that word. He's faithful to do that. Now, Abraham's not acting much like a prophet here. He's, He's really falling on his duties and not living as a holy prophet to the Lord, but in God's grace, again, he's designated Abraham a prophet, and he doesn't take that away from him, even though Abraham's stumbling around here in his sin. Abraham's not perfect. Huh. That's not a shock to us, right? It's not a shock to us to know that we're not perfect. But even when, our, when, even when we're not perfect, even when we stumble and we mess up, God doesn't take away his grace from us and say, well, see, I knew you were going to do that, Right? He he still holds on to Abraham. He's still a prophet, even though he's messing around in sin. Well, next lesson in our notes, sin's consequences spread to others. The consequences of sin will spread to others. Abraham's sin of deceiving Abimelech put Abimelech and the entire people of the Philistines in jeopardy of God's immediate judgment. I will kill you, Abimelech, and your whole family if you don't give this man's wife back. Abraham's sin put in jeopardy that whole family, but even more seriously for us, Abraham's sin put in jeopardy God's promises to him about his own people, God's people, and the promised son Isaac. Do you remember Isaac? God said he's going to be born within a year from now. Now, if we're thinking carefully here, the son is going to be born within a year, but how long is the baby inside mommy's womb? Nine months, right? So that's really God's promise. It says he's going to be conceived within the next three months. Well, now Abraham's got this problem because he's not even with his wife. She's with some other person living in his house. And this is the work of the enemy to try to disrupt God's plan, his covenant. And if God doesn't do something, this, this is going to be a humongous problem because not only will Isaac not be born, God will be shown to be a liar. God can't keep his word if this happens. God said Isaac is going to be born within a year, but he can't be born within a year if Abraham and Sarah aren't together. What's going to happen? This is a, it was a terrible idea to begin with, but it's even worse timing right now, right? We're within three months of this needing to happen. And, and where would God's promise be? Even if there was a question, even if Sarah was able to come back to Abraham and they they, are conceived, they conceive a child and he's born, wouldn't the question always be, well, was, was he really Abraham's? Or was he Abimelech's? Not only that, but through this seed is supposed to come the rest of God's people and even more, the Messiah himself who will bless all families on the earth. Satan's really working overtime here. Abraham's flesh has really fallen down on this job, and the consequences have just spiraled out of control. I mean, God's entire redemptive plan for creation is in jeopardy now because of what Abraham did. The next little lesson in our notes is that there is no such thing as a little sin. There's no such thing as a little sin. This was just a little lie that he told. Oh, yeah, she's my sister. And with those words, all of that came about. I mean, all of this is in jeopardy. But notice that to prevent all of that, God intervenes. God himself personally intervenes. He could have made it so that none of this could have happened. He's so sovereign. He's so powerful. He's so in control that he could have made sure that none of this ever came about. But he brought it about because he's always working and he's teaching us about who he is. I'm the faithful God and I work through all circumstances and events. So that last one, that last lesson under point number one here is that God fulfills his word. He fulfills his word and he keeps his promises. If he hadn't done something to intervene here, listen, you and I don't have any hope. Because if God can't keep his promises, what kind of God is that? Right? You don't serve a God who can't Make promises and keep those promises because he's either not powerful enough, doesn't care enough, or or, or, or you're just wasting your time and you're fooling yourself. But God does care, he does act, and he fulfills his word and he brings it to pass here and he shows us, look, I am always working and I'm always intervening for the sake of my own character, God's character, for his word, for his servant Abraham to protect his people, and to protect what he's promised to them. So in this part, God himself confronts Abimelech. Next, number two, in verses 8 through 13, Abimelech confronts Abraham. Now we're getting into Abraham getting confronted with sin. And so Abimelech gets up really early in the morning. I think I would too if God just threatened my life. Um, I need to take care of this right now, right? He gathers everybody around. He tells his servants, they become very afraid. So he says, Abraham, come on in here. Sarah, what's going on? Why did you do this to us? How could you possibly have done this? It didn't get past Abimelech that this little thing was just going to blow up and ruin everything. It was going to be disastrous for his people, even if Abraham thought he could kind of sneak it through there, right? You've done things that ought not to be done. What did you see? In other words, Abraham, why did you do this? Why did you do this? Now, th- again, this is a very painful thing when somebody who doesn't know the Lord calls you out when you know the Lord for sin. It's a very embarrassing, painful time when that happens. You remember First Peter 2 where he says, what credit is it if when you are beaten you endure? Because when you, when you suffer for the name of Jesus, that's commendable and, and that pleases God that you endure and that, that you, you make it through believing and, and with stronger faith. But when you deserve it, what does that matter? <laughs> you, that you got what you deserved. When we've sinned, God can and does use unbelievers even to call out our sin and to show it to us and reveal it to us and, and how vividly that lesson will be remem- remembered. There was another time in, in, a, in an office we worked really closely together in the Air Force and, and I was convinced at the time that Halloween of all days was a day that I needed to be fasting and praying. We needed to be praying for ourselves, our family, our neighbors, our coworkers. We needed to be praying for them. But I was convinced at the time that Halloween of all days, stop eating and just pray all day because these people need the Lord. And they do. We all do. But at that point, during that day, through the course of the day, not eating, I really had lost the point. I really wasn't praying. I really wasn't concerned about people. I was trying to get through the day because I was feeling really hungry. And if you're like me and you start feeling really hungry, you get pretty hangry, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I, I started to get very impatient. I started snapping at people. I started just tossing things around and getting really easily frustrated and until one of my coworkers and friends who noticed that I was only taking fluids said, Oh, why don't you just go eat lunch? <laughs> and he called me out right in front of everybody, like, You know, you're fasting, but all you're doing is making a mess out of this. And I, yeah, you're right. I mean, I, I, I don't think I had prayed that entire morning. I don't think I had done anything I was supposed to be doing except not eating, and it was making a show out of it, and it was ruining and spoiling the whole thing because they said, look, you're just being a jerk to everybody. <laughs> so I had to go repent. <laughs> I was praying then, even as I was eating, right? That you can still pray while you eat, right? So it's, it's painful. It's embarrassing to be called out for sin as a believer by unbelievers, but we need to be, the lesson in our notes, always be ready to Repent. Always be ready. Never allow sin to harden your heart and prevent you from seeing it within yourself. You know, it's really easy to call out those sins of all those people out there in the world. (laughs) I need to pray because of all those people, those sinful people, but there's so much sin already in here that I need to be starting with. when it's called out because we didn't see it, don't excuse it, don't hold on to it, don't rationalize and compromise all the things we've been talking about the last few weeks. Don't try to play around with it. Confess it. Turn away from it. Repent it. Here's sin, Ephesians 4, describing Gentiles walking in the futility of their mind. Me before Christ. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. See, that's how it starts, and that's how it starts happening within us. Our heart starts to get hard, and we don't want to see the sin. And even when we start to see it, we don't want to recognize it. We don't want to confess it or turn away from it. He goes on and he says, "...they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity." So instead, Psalm 32 says, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Praise God. Praise God for what he does. So God used Abimelech to point out Abraham's sin. And Abraham said, no, no, forget that. I'm not taking that from you, you unbeliever, you pagan. I'm not listening to you, right? I'm not taking that. He could have turned around, walked out, taken his wife, and gone away. But he stayed, and he explained what he was thinking. He says, this is how I arrived at the conclusion that this was the right thing to do. And it's a ridiculous, <laughs> it's a ridiculous set of reasons. Now, that's next in our notes. The reason, he's asked the why question. Why did you do it, Abraham? And in our lesson here, the reason that someone sinned is difficult to discover That's the first blank. It's difficult to discover. It's even more difficult to understand. It's even more difficult to understand than even find out why somebody did something wrong. And this includes little things that somebody says or does, all the way up to huge, massive events like uh, the tragic events of school shootings. Why did he do it? And people want to know, why did he do that? What brought him to that? And then many times you never find out. It's really hard to find out. But sometimes you hear, and this is why. He wrote a letter, and this is what it says. And you scratch your head. Well, that doesn't make sense for why somebody would go shoot other people like that. No. No, because there's no good reason for somebody to do that, is there? So it's not just hard to discover the reason for somebody sinning, but it's even harder to figure out if you hear it. How that makes any sense. So the the why question is, is a very difficult question for us. We need to answer it for ourselves as we're dealing with sin before God. And what was my motivation? What was I after? Oh, that's ridiculous. God, help me to turn away from that. Help me to desire you. Help me to want to love and honor Jesus. But when we try to get that from other people, it's never going to make sense. So Abraham confesses here. And it's implied in the original, but the ESV, I think the ESV is the only translation that says, I did it because, that's implied, it's not stated in the original. But, But there's no defense here. And there's no, hey, hold on a minute, you're just laying on a little bit thick. Calm down, it wasn't that bad. No, he doesn't say any of that. But he does give the reasons that he was justifying himself for this sin that led up to the the conclusion this was the right thing to do. He confesses here. And there are three indications of self-justification that he gives that we need to watch for in our life. Three signs that we're justifying ourselves. Number one, in verse 11, he was assuming the worst of others. He was assuming the worst. He says, look, you guys don't even know the Lord. There's no fear of God here. You guys don't know who God is. So that means you don't have to treat them lovingly or fairly. He thought there was no fear of God. You know, I haven't been here. I haven't told you about God, so you don't know who God is, right? I mean, and verse 8 shows they had plenty of fear of God. When God confronted Abimelech and he called his servants and he told them they were very afraid of this God. Now, they didn't really know him, but they were afraid of him. So Abraham was wrong to assume the worst of others and then use that as the reason to sin against them. There is a religion out there that says it's okay to lie to infidels. You can lie to other people. You can deceive them. You can take advantage of them because they're infidels. But God doesn't tell us that. God's word doesn't tell us it's okay to sin against these kinds of people. No people deserve to be sinned against by anybody else, but particularly by believers. So don't assume the worst in others just to make it okay to sin against them. You know, well, I sinned against you because you did it to me first. Or I sinned against that person because, you know... That's what they get. (laughs) I'm the judge. It's a way to tell that you're self-justifying. Okay, secondly, verse 12, Abraham started reasoning through details. He he starts, can't you hear the word technically here in this this explanation? Well, technically she is my sister, right? If you're using that word technically, well, technically it was okay because I can reason through a bunch of details. Then you're self-justifying. Right? Or if you're holding back important information, you yeah, know, well, th- there, these are the details, and, and these are the details you need to know. You don't need to know these other things that completely change the entire truth of the situation. Right? Like the fact that he's married to her. I mean, that, that would change everything. But when you're bringing up details, you're leaving out key information, you're saying, well, technically this or that. You're leading people to believe something that isn't the whole truth. You're self justifying. You're explaining why it was okay for me to sin, right? Number three, verse 13, Abraham starts excusing by precedent. He excuses by precedent. You know, this isn't the first time we've done this. In fact, we've been doing this for 25 years. Everywhere we go, ever since I was called out of the land where I was, God called me out. We've been doing this. I call her my sister, she calls me her brother. But finally being called out for sin after years of committing it doesn't mean that it was okay the whole time, does it? It doesn't make it any better that you've been sinning for years, or that's the way I've always done it. It makes it worse. <laughs> you've got years of sin built up. Doesn't matter. I mean, it doesn't make it better that, that we've been doing it this way, or this is the way I've always done it, and you know, God's never had a problem with it till now. <laughs> Deal with it rather than hold on to it and and try to justify why it's okay. But did you also catch a little bit of a hint of blaming God for it? He he says in verse 13, when God caused me to wander from my house, (laughs) this is what we've been doing. Just a little bit of, well, you know, God brought this about. It's never God's fault when we sin. And it's never God's fault when we continue to sin, when we don't stop sinning. So again, there's no excuse for sin, right? There, there, there's no such thing as an excuse. There's no, there's no ignorance about God's law. There, there's no sinning and, and making it okay because other people deserved it. Um, there, there's no excuse for sin that I can mitigate it. I can, I can excuse it and pardon it with all these details. There's no excuse for sin because, well, this is the way I've always done it. God used Abimelech to confront Abraham with a serious sin. And so Abraham confesses the reasons for his sins. And they're not acceptable, they don't explain why that was okay, but that's the truth. That's what he was thinking. And so it's a, it's a good, helpful lesson for us about being honest about what led us to sin and confessing it and turning away from it. And then not expecting a good answer to why when we're confronting our children. Why did you do that? Because he did it to me first. Well, that's not a good reason. I know, but that's the reason, right? Or when we're confronting sin in one another. Watch for these things be gracious, be patient with one another, be ready to repent, be ready to confess and deal with sin. Well, finally, number three, in verses 14 to 18, God fulfills, protects, and restores. He restores. Sticking with the conventions of the time, Abimelech says, I'm going to make amends, but he goes overboard. He gives... gives uh, servants. He gives sheep. He gives oxen much more than would have been expected. He, and he's hospitable. He says, you can live wherever you want in my land instead of chasing him away. Remember God's promise in, in Genesis 12, whoever blesses you, I will bless. If he curses you, I will curse him. Abimelech says, I'm going to bless Abraham. <laughs> I'm going to bless him beyond what he deserves, far beyond what he deserves. God is fulfilling his word. He's He's watching over his servant. He's protecting his word. And and as if that's not enough, he wants to make sure that everybody knows that Sarah is still pure and innocent in her marriage. So he gives a thousand pieces of silver. But it says to your brother, right? Not to your husband. This is who you told me he was. That's who I'm giving it to, right? You want to play the the semantics game? (laughs) I'll play that. But it was a promise of her purity. And then look at how righteous Abimelech comes across. And look at how dirty and and just sinful Abraham looks in the middle of all this. But works are not how a person becomes saved. And before God, our works are not determinative for whether we belong to him or not. Praise God for that, right? It's not like God said, well, you know, Abimelech, you, you turned up to be okay today, so you can be my child. And Abraham, I'm going to kick you to the curb because you messed up. No, God is faithful. He, he's faithful. He forgives his servants when we sin. Be encouraged by that. God restores us when there's Confession even when you do sin, you know, because we're going to be sinning less and less as we love our Savior more and more, but even when we sin, instead of justifying ourselves, we cry out to God and we say, I'm guilty, I'm messed up. God, please forgive. He is faithful and just to forgive us those sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He even restores Abimelech and his family. God, God uses Abraham's obedience to pray for them. He restores them, and he brings that all about. So our lessons here, God is sovereign over who has children? Did you see that in the in the passage here? God is sovereign over who has children. When He had closed the wombs, He then reopens the womb. And it's not because all it's not always because somebody did something wrong. <laughs> Many times, it's not anything to do with whether somebody did something wrong. But not only that, did you see? Abraham's wife is 90 years old. She's never been able to have children. And here he is praying for these other women to be able to have children. And God answers that prayer. Sarah will be able to bear children, but not yet. He has to pray for others first. So, be content, the next one. Be content with what God gives and rejoice for what he gives others. God, how come I don't have what that person has? How come I can't get this? I mean, it would be really nice to have that and... God says, Be content with what I've given you. Rejoice when He's gracious and merciful. He's more than fair to us, He's more than generous to us. So place your hope fully in the faithful God. That last lesson there. Place your hope fully in this faithful God. Not just for saving you from hell and getting us away from sin and those amazing, wonderful things that we can't do on our own, but for life. All of the time, hope in Him this faithful, just, righteous, gracious God. In all this, God shows us he protects his word, he protects his people, he fulfills and keeps his promises, and that's important because we're holding on to his promises. We have hope because of him, because of our Savior Jesus, because of what he told us. So our application really is to look at these lessons and and evaluate which ones we need to be reminded of or which ones we need to learn and hold on to these lessons. Father, we thank you that you are God, that you are so powerful, that you are so good. God, thank you that you are the, the all-knowing, the all-powerful, all-present God. Lord, thank you that you are faithful. Lord, we know that we've not earned or deserved your faithfulness, Lord. You are faithful because that's who you are. You are the good, the perfect, the righteous, the holy God. Father, thank you for showing that to us. Thank you for teaching us that. I pray, God, that you would continue to teach us that, that we'd never lose sight of that, that we'd hold on to you, that we'd hold on to our Savior as he holds on to us more strongly than we can hold to him. Thank you that he cares for us and that he's there for us, Father. I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen our desire for him, strengthen our love for him, that we would live for him, that others would see that and that they would, they would come and ask, why do you have hope? And that we'd be ready to give the reason for that hope. God, because you are faithful, because you are real and true and living and powerful, and because Jesus Christ, your son, lived perfectly, he died for us, took our sins, took our punishment, and rose again from the grave. Father, thank you for those promises, for that hope. Thank you for our Savior. We look forward to his return soon in your timing, for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.